And thank you, worship team. Our kids are being dismissed to your right this morning, my left. Um, and that's where you'll pick them up. Do join us uh, as soon as the service is over uh, for a meal and time of fellowship. Hope you'll do that. Acts chapter number 7, if you will join me there. Acts chapter 7. Uh, we were singing that song. Been a long time. Isn't it something when a 20-year-old song seems like a really long time ago? <laughs> Uh, that's kind of a song of our time period, uh, but it's been around a little while now. And I like that song. I, uh, I think it's because I'm reading Ephesians, not Ephesians, I'm reading Ecclesiastes as part of my Old Testament reading right now. And I don't know if anybody else is doing that, but that little line, a vapor in the wind, I wonder if our brother in Georgia, when he wrote that song, did not have Ecclesiastes on his heart as he was writing uh, some of that song. Um, Ecclesiastes, that is a thought-provoking and sometimes confusing book. Uh, it's really been making me think. All right. Acts chapter 7. Let me do a real quick uh, survey. How many of you, would you raise your hand if you've been with us either last Sunday or two Sundays ago? Would you raise your hand? I'm just kind of get a quick read. Um, looks like most fit that category, so that's awesome. Um, so I'm going to try to do a shorter review then because, so here, everybody listen to what I'm about to say. Uh, we started last week this sermon, this message of Stephen. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's a really long sermon. And in that second point today, you're going to see some themes. So there are some like master broad based themes that are running through this message. And now listen, y'all are not going to have, you can't get bored with us keep pointing out these themes Maybe started some last week. Some are going to be brought in again this week. They're going to come up over and over and over. Like, I don't know how, how many verses we're going to break this up into, but whether it's five or we try to do 12, today is nine, you're going to see these same themes come up over and over. Stephen is on a mission. I'm reminded of one of my favorite movies, uh, The Patriot. Now, I forget my main character is played by Mel Gibson. Uh, and he's my favorite character in that, obviously. It's called, it's called The Patriot. There's this movie called The Patriot. And it's the Revolutionary War time. And... and uh, he's leading a, a, a band of militia, in essence, and they keep bothering the British. But he gets a hold of uh, Cornwallis, his General Cornwallis, the, the British general. He gets a hold of his memoirs and his notes and all the stuff, and he comes back and he says, I've been reading in the mind. I've been, I forget how he words it, swimming or walking in the mind of a genius. This guy, I mean, he's a genius. It's like he's, this American man is like, I've been reading Cornwallis. Wow, he's brilliant on the tactics of war. The more I'm reading Acts chapter 7, the more I'm realizing this guy, Stephen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, and revealed things by God, this guy is an absolute genius, and he knows the Bible. And everything, I'm, I'm going over and over, and the more I'm in it, I have an advantage that you don't, because I'm reading this like 30 to 40 times every week, this section of verses. The more I dig in, the more I'm like, this is absolutely so on point. My thought hit me this week. He is laying down all kind of layers of stuff. I'm wondering, is the Sanhedrin getting it? Are they getting all that he's laid down? I know where this verse 51 goes to. It culminates with him saying, hey, you current leaders of Israel, you're just like all the previous leaders of Israel. You always rebel against God. You persecute God's people. You kill the prophets. Now the very righteous one of God from heaven has come, and you've put him to death. I know where he's heading. I know they're going to be enraged. Here's what I'm wondering. Were they tracking all the, the layers and the nuances and the subtleties? It is, man, I don't have time to give... Even the, and there's more that I don't see. 
Um, and there's just some I've had to cut. And there's so many layers. So here's what we're going to try to do today. Uh, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. And hopefully by the end of the day, we will have preached 39 uh, chapters of Genesis. All right? So <laughs> that's what we're trying to do. Like serious people, we're trying to pick up Genesis 12, really the end of Gen- uh, Genesis 11. And we're trying to go through chapter 50 this morning. And there's these big themes that Stephen's trying to get across, but there's also all these details. And here's, I'm at a disadvantage this morning. There's some of you sitting here right now, because some of you, there's probably someone listening, either online or you right now, you've been reading in Genesis, and you're even more familiar with that aspect of it than I am this morning, though I've been swimming in Stephen's version of this and his highlights. He's just bringing highlights so there's that. And there's some of you, you know Genesis inside out. It, maybe it's your favorite book. And you know all these details. But I also know that in this room, there are other people that know none of the details. They know zero. And so here's, here comes Stephen. And he's covering 2,000 years, in essence, from Abraham to the time of Christ. And he just picks up this little topic. He says these, these phrases, a few verses in our, in our Bible, a few verses about them. And he moves on to this next big thing, skipping hundreds of years. Or in one verse, one phrase covers 20, 30, 40 years. And it's just like, wow. And so part of me wants to, like, stop. And I need to explain everything that happened back in Genesis. And it's like... Can't do that, so my prayer, Holy Spirit, you just tell us what to, where to add in and what details need to be added, but staying true to what is Stephen's total purpose. So here's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to read verses 1, 2. We're going to read all the way to 116, but I want to back up to verse 1. Before I do, everybody ready? Here's, here's the review. Stephen is one of the first seven deacons. God has chosen his apostles. The church got their chance to pick seven men. And this guy's listed first. Like he's picked somebody, seven special men. And this guy's first on the list. And he's this awesome teacher. And none of the Jews in the synagogue can, can defeat him. They keep losing. And finally, they take him down. They get so mad. They grab him, take him down to the Sanhedrin, the high court of the land. And they, as I read this week... When it comes to blaspheming and going against the temple, the Romans had actually granted them, apparently, the power to kill people. We know if Gentiles went too far into the temple, the Jews could kill them. But apparently, they feel liberty like if someone's going against and blaspheming and undermining the temple, we can kill them there. We have the authority of the death penalty. Here, this man, Stephen, is being put on trial, and here's the charges against him. What are the charges? Your honors, this man does not stop teaching and preaching and speaking against this place. He hates this place. And he hates the law. He goes against Moses all the time. He's like against our nation. Are these charges true? Are these things so? And then Stephen launches into his answer. Last week we noted that Stephen, I I think he's one of the great men of vision in the entire Bible. He saw things before it happened. So I don't think... That these charges they brought are completely baseless, totally fabricated, made-up things. No, they're things how they perceived. And I know this because when Stephen gets up, he says, I've never said one word about the temple. He can't say that. He has been speaking about the temple. He can't say, I've never said anything to the effect that the temple is is not going to be here eventually. I've not said anything like the temple is going to be destroyed. I've not said anything like the sacrifices are going to be stopped. He can't say that because he has been saying that. Why? Because that is what was going to happen. It was revealed to him. So last week, I couldn't, I wouldn't die for this, but I believe Stephen probably in the synagogue said things to the effect of, hey guys, we don't need to offer more sacrifices. 
We can't be saved by the law of Moses. That ceremony, all those sacrifices, they don't actually save us. They were pointing to Jesus' death on the cross. No doubt these are the things he's teaching. And what they're perceiving is, you're against the sacrificial system. You're against the temple. And so they take him down to the Sanhedrin. Would you join me in verse 1? And the high priest said, are these things so? Again, I think that's implied. You're in, you're in deep water, man, if this is true. Are these things so? And Stephen, he doesn't just say, no, nothing to it. No, he can't say that. What does he do? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, very respectful, hear me. What he's saying is, men, I'm going to have to go through a journey for you to feel what I've been teaching. I can't just say yes or no, and I'm going to ask for your patience. Members of the Sanhedrin, you know all these facts. You guys, you've been to the rabbinical schools. You know the facts, but have you ever heard them this way? Have you ever heard them? So I'm, I'm offering you today, Grace View. Many of you here today and watching online, you know these stories, but have you ever heard them pieced this way? That's what he's asking. Brothers and fathers, hear me. So here he goes. He starts back with Abraham, verse 2. Here's my answer. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Abraham didn't go looking for him. God appeared, notice, when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Would you look this way quickly? Remember last week, I don't have a map again. We had a map. We went way over here to the Persian Gulf where Iraq and Iran joined just above the Persian Gulf. This is where Abraham lived in Mesopotamia. This is where God met him. He called him out. We're going to read that. He's going to end up going about 500 miles up to a place called Haran. And then God's going to appear to him again in Haran. And he's going to tell him, in essence, keep on going because this is not the land that I've chosen you for. So he leaves here. He goes up here, kind of gets stuck for a little while with his dad and his family, who he was called to leave. And then after his dad dies, then he's going to actually come down into the promised land. And so, Stephen, my answer, have you ever thought about the ramifications where God spoke to our forefather Abraham? Verse 2 again. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, that's part one, and go into the land that I will show you, that's part two. Part one, leave here. Part two, go here. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. Great, off he goes. He's believed the Lord, he's following the Lord. Verse four, he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Now wait, why are we stopping there? I don't know the answer to that question. Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin, these are the facts. After his father died, God removed him from there, Haran, into this land in which you are now living. Hey, Sanhedrin, that's when God brought him down here where we're at right now at the time of the speech. So what happens when Abraham gets to the promised land, Canaan? Yet he, God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession. There was no major announcement When Abraham arrived, no massive voice out of the sky, all inhabitants of Canaan, notification, start packing your bags and leave. Abraham is here. I'm giving this to him. You need to get out of here. No, God doesn't do that. He doesn't give him not even a place for his foot to lay down at first, but he promises it as a possession for he and his offspring. That sounds great. Problem. I don't have any offspring. I don't have any children. I don't have children because I don't have a child. The end of verse 5. Though he had no child, Abraham, I'm giving you this land. And right now is not yet the time. Verse 6. And God spoke to this effect. 
that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. We're going to find out today what's going to make them go to this other land. Abraham, this is going to be your land and your children's. But something's going to happen. Your descendants are going to another land. They're going to be strangers and sojourners, visitors, guests there. And then it's going to turn. These people will enslave them, your descendants. They will enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. It's going to be really hard, and it's going to be for quite a long time, 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve. Abraham is what you can rest assured. I'm going to judge that nation that enslaves your descendants, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So that's the plan. So what we noticed last week, what Stephen is wanting the Sanhedrin to understand, and what I, want, I need everybody here to understand, I'm going to repeat it. Abraham is key in the Bible because Abraham's salvation, his relationship with God is the pattern. It is representative of all people who have a relationship with God. We learned more than these, but I'm going to recap four lessons we noted last week. Lesson number one. Hear it. Listen. God initiates all relationships with him. This is true in my life. I got saved 44 years ago in 1979. I did not ask to go to this camp. I did not make phone calls to go to this Bible camp. Someone contacted my parents. Someone paid my way. Months before that, no doubt, my uncle, probably a year before that, my uncle felt led to have this camp, made phone calls to a man in Alabama, phone calls to a man in Greenville, South Carolina, to come up to a camp in Asheville, North Carolina. God laid on their heart what to preach on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, set the whole thing up. God was pursuing me. I wasn't pursuing him. God initiates all relationships with anyone who ends up having a relationship with him. Second thing we learn, everybody's in sin when God initiates that relationship. Third thing we learned last week, salvation is like this verse 2 and 3. It's this invitation to come on this journey with God. Last week I proposed to you, if, if the torments of hell is not enough to, to cause you to want to escape heaven and to escape hell and have this relationship with God, could I interest you in escaping the absolute boredom outside of the torments? The boredom. People in hell are literally going nowhere. They're going nowhere. But if you get saved, you are on a journey that is eternal. It's the best life. And this is, this is the worst version. This is the worst version of the best life. You really ought to get saved. God's saying, come with me on a journey. And Abraham's like, okay, I'm in. And he believed God. The last thing we learn, yes, Abraham believed God down in Mesopotamia. He believed him. He left. He is saved at that moment. But he got stuck. And he stopped here. And it's only after there was this death, his dad died, then he ends up back on track and getting with the Lord. And we, we, we learn, I, I, I threw it out, is there something in your life that needs to die for you to get back progressing with the Lord? Would you read with me today's text, verse 8? Verse 8 to 16. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. God gives Abraham this covenant. He's already done that. And he ends up giving him circumcision as an aspect of that covenant. Guys, listen. Verse 8 just covering lots. <laughs> These little phrases, it's like lots of material. And Stephen just rips it off. And God gave him the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac. There's a lot happening. Ain't got time. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And circumcised him on the eighth day, just like God said. 
And, again, years go by, Abraham or Isaac became the father of Jacob. That was the whole process. And then Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And if any of them had a lot of process behind it, it's this Jacob became the father of the patriarchs. He's talking about Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob ends up having these 12 sons. And y'all know that most of them are not even born in Israel. They're born on like this, they're born on really like a 14-year time period where Jacob is in a place called Padanaram. He's up uh, working for his uncle Laban who's a little more of a shyster even than Jacob was a shyster. And so Jacob's working for his uncle. Seven years he works for Rachel. And on the wedding night, he ends up, he finds out he's not actually with Rachel. He's with Leah, the older sister. Hey, you tricked me. I work for Rachel. Yeah, I couldn't do that. I couldn't give away the younger sister before he gave away the older sister. If you want Rachel, you need to work seven more years. So off he goes. He works seven more years. He ends up getting Rachel. And then, hey, while you're here, please don't leave, man. And then Jacob ends up working seven more years, and that's when he gets all these flocks and herds, and God is just blessing him abundantly. And he ends up having, like, I think, 11 of his kids up there. And you may be thinking, man, 14 years, he worked for seven, he has no kids. The last, like, 13, 14 years, man, they must have been putting them out, like, one, of the, you know, one every year. Every, like, but here's, the, here's the, the weird part. Yeah, it's with four different women. Because Rachel was barren. Leah's having kids. Rachel gets jealous. Use my handmaid to have kids for me. And so she's not, and Leah's like, oh, two can play at that game. You're going to use your handmaid. Hey, Jacob, my handmaid. It, it, it is some wild stuff. You ought to read Genesis. It's wild stuff. Jerry Springer's got nothing on what happened in Padanaram. It's some weird stuff. Now back to our text. Verse 9, Jacob's down in the land, and he has these sons. At this point, he has, uh, really, he has all 12. Watch what Stephen does. Hey, Sanhedrin, the patriarchs, this is our fathers. Please understand, this is something you got to get about this whole story. The Jews at this time, they all knew their heritage. You, you, you may, most of us here this morning, we don't know who our great-great-great-grandfather was and our great-great-great-grandmother. I don't. Some of you be like, hey, I do. I have a whole tribe. That's awesome. They knew their stuff. Every member on that Sanhedrin, they knew which tribe they came from. They knew which one of these 12 sons they came from that tribe. They know it. Most of them, because they were priests, came from Levi, the son Levi, that Jacob's son Levi. But among them, they could all trace their stuff. No doubt all tribes represented. Watch Stephen's point. Sanhedrin. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. The ten, older, are jealous of the eleventh born. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But there's a lot there. Do you you guys remember what happens there? They hate Joseph. These ten older brothers absolutely hate it. Now, he's Rachel's firstborn son, and Jacob loved Rachel the most. And so that gets him an advantage, and Jacob's born next to last. So he has a little brother named Benjamin, also born to Rachel. But Jacob, the Bible's clear. Jacob loved Joseph more. These ten older boys know it. He has a special coat of many colors. They know it. He doesn't apparently have to work as much as they do. And then he starts having these dreams. 
And Joseph starts getting these dreams, and he says, hey, guys, guess what? I got this dream. Yeah, and here's the gist of it. All of you end up bowing down in front of me. And he has two of those dreams. And one of these days, he's gone out, and he's checking on his brothers. And they're like, ah, here he is, away from home, this dreamer. Let's kill him. And they would have killed him if it hadn't been for the oldest, Reuben. He's like, no, 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 don't kill him. They put him in a pit. And apparently, Reuben's gone for a little bit of time. And while he's gone, the other nine decided, there comes a caravan. And they're coming from up north, and they're heading down to Egypt. We're going to sell this boy. If we can't kill him, then we'll sell him. And they sold him, and off he goes down into Egypt. And here, here comes Reuben back. And like, where's Joseph? And we sold him. And he ends up being part of this plot where they take Joseph's coat of many colors, put some animal blood all over it, take it back to Jacob and say, your poor son was killed and slain by the animals. He's dead. You see what I'm saying? You see what we just did in verse 9? The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. There's this whole, it's chapters. Keep reading. The patriots, jealous of Joseph, sold him, Stephen's talking to Sanhedrin, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. Do you see Joseph going off? I don't, is, he, is he tied up? Is he riding? I don't know. Is he tied? He's, he's, a, he's crying. He's weeping. Brothers, what are you doing? Please. Off he goes. I think 17 years old, just a kid. They hate him so much. We'll never see him again. <laughs> You're lucky we didn't kill you. He hadn't stopped us. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Like, do y'all know what just happened in that verse? Do y'all know how many? How, this didn't just happen. Who's this kid? Some Hebrew we found his brother sold him. You will now be number two in all the land. That's not how it happened. There are layers and layers and layers of stuff that took place. We may or may not be able to say it. We'll see. Stephen's dropping stuff. Are they picking it up? Are you picking it up? Here we go. Verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. Get it? I mean a deep, I mean horrible famine. This food's gone. It's down in Egypt. It's all in Canaan. And great affliction and our fathers, Stephen is, hey, Sanhedrin, our fathers could find no food. You know these facts. They're starving. No food for them. No food for their animals. They're going to die. But, verse 12, Jacob, when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, for some reason, Egypt has food. Even though they're hit by the famine, they have food stored up. And they have enough to sell people. They're selling it to their own people. Pharaoh's making a killing down there. His own people are having to buy food from him, and they're giving over their land to Pharaoh. The dude is making a killing. It was brilliant whatever he did. But they have enough left over for other people. Boys, go down there and buy us. Here's some money. Go get us some food. We're dying. Verse 11. Came a famine throughout all, throughout all Egypt and Canaan. Great affliction. Our fathers could find no food. Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent our fathers on their first visit. Track with Stephen. He sent the fathers. He sent Stephen to say, hey, Jacob sent our dads, ten of them, 
on their first visit down to Egypt to go get some grain. And they went. He, he doesn't get the details. There's a lot of them. They go down. They get the grain. The man they're actually getting the grain from is their younger brother, but they don't recognize him. He now speaks Egyptian. He's no doubt clean-shaven. They're herdsmen. They have beards. They dress differently. He's throwing his voice. He knows who they are. Here they come. And you know what they end up doing? They're all bowing down. We would like, and he starts treating them kind of roughly because he's heading somewhere. I'm going to get lost in the details. I don't have time to do it. I'm telling you. You need to read Genesis to appreciate. You need to be reading the Old Testament between now and next two or three weeks to get Stephen's sermon. So just read the whole Old Testament to get his sermon. If you want to get well, all that he's dropping. So they go down and they get grain. One of them has to stay behind because Joseph, again, throwing his, speaking through an interpreter like he doesn't know what his brothers are saying. Don't you have another brother? How do you know this? How's your dad doing? You guys are just here as spies. No, 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 we promise. You're, you're trying to, you know, we're weak and you're trying to spy out the land. No, no, promise. We just want food. Tell you what, you go back, you bring your younger brother with you, and until then, one of you is going to stay. And it just so happens to be the second oldest brother. That's nice. He didn't pick Reuben. Has to stay. That one, Simeon. You, buddy, should have stopped the, the, the other brothers, but you didn't. You were probably the ringleader. So I'm getting bogged down. We've got to keep moving. Here we go. They come back with food. Simeon's still down in Egypt. And the rules are, next time you come, don't come back and ask for food unless you bring the other brother, which is Joseph's full brother. All the other ten are his half-brothers. Verse 12. No, verse 13. Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, and on the second visit, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. It's a long story. Joseph ends up breaking down. He cries. He comes back. He calls them in. He finally says, it's me. It's Joseph. What? And they think, he's probably going to kill us. And he's like, no, God has done this. God has had this whole big plan. He had you hate me and sell me into slavery. And I'm down here. God's moved me up. I'm number two in the whole land. I'm in charge of all the food. But all his dreams were fulfilled. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I want you to meet my brothers. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. How's dad doing? He's good. He's good. Get dad down here. Y'all come live down here. Bring dad. Sure enough, that's what happens. And Jacob went down, 130 years old. Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. That doesn't mean when he arrived there he died. It means he came, he lived, he completed his days, and he died, he and our fathers, so they all end up dying down in Egypt. Now, verse 16, pay attention because there's a 400 and some year gap between verse 15 and 16. Because verse 16 happens after Moses leads the children of Israel. As they're going out of Egypt, by faith, they do verse 16. And they, the fathers, were carried out, their bodies, their remains. They were carried back to Shechem. He's telling the Sanhedrin. And they were laid in a tomb, the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor of Shechem. So when it was all said and done, as our forefathers are leaving Egypt, they bring the remains of the patriarchs and Jacob, and they bring them back, and they bury the 12 patriarchs in this place, Shechem, that is right then, as Stephen's talking, 30-some miles north of them. What to cover today? We've got a lot. 
Let's go. Verse number, not verse, but number one thought this morning. Comes out of verse eight. God keeps his promises to Abraham. God kept his promises to Abraham. God said, Abraham, this land is for you and your descendants, but I don't have any descendants. Well, you're going to, and he promised that you're going to have a special line. And he ended up, as you see in verse 8, he had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the patriarchs, and thus was the nation of Israel born. Now, follow me. Stephen is talking to the Sanhedrin knowing the significance of the death of Jesus and knowing what Jesus had taught, what John the Baptist had taught about the status of Israel in their day. Wiersbe is all over it when he writes the following. You need to get it. There are lessons here. Wiersbe writes, quote, The Jews greatly... Why are you starting with Abraham? Because that's where it starts. The Jews greatly revered Abraham and prided themselves in being his children. But they confused physical descent with spiritual experience. And they depended on their national heritage rather than their personal faith. Everybody listen, listen. This is important. This might be you. He notes, oh, they greatly revered Abraham and they prided that They took great pride. They looked down on everyone else that was not a Jew. They looked downward on them. But their problem was they confused being spiritual physical descendants of Abraham with actually having spiritual experience with God. He writes, they depended on their national heritage rather than their personal faith. But here's the problem with that. God has no grandchildren. Wearsby writes. God has no grandchildren. He has children, no grandchildren. My granddad was a pastor. My mom and dad were both Christians. Had an uncle who's a pastor. Several other uncles who were heavily involved in church, leading music in Sunday schools. My brother goes often every year on mission trips. He's in New York City right now on one. When he gets back at the end of next week, he's going to Honduras in about nine days from now. I have multiple cousins who are preachers. None of that does a lick of good for me and my relationship with the Lord. It does nothing for me and my relationship. I have to have my own relationship with the Lord. Do you have your own relationship with God? God doesn't have grandkids. That's why I want to say thank you so much to those of you who work with our children. Our youth ministry and our children's ministry is crucial. It's extremely important. I know if I were you, I would love to be sitting in here and seeing and hear the Word of God preached. But praise the Lord for those of you who are like, you know what? I want to do this, but put me in there too because God doesn't have grandkids. These kids down here are not going to heaven because you are. This is important. I need your help. You ought to be in it. You ought to be in that. You ought to be in that ministry. Now I want you to write the following. Wearsby writes, quote, I want you to go ahead and write. It'll be on the screen a little bit. I want you to write his sentence, and then I'm going to talk about it. Abraham was saved by grace through faith, by grace through faith, and not because he was circumcised, He's saved by grace. So Abraham is the representative and the pattern for everybody that has a relationship with God. Here's what we learn. Abraham was saved by grace through faith and not because he was circumcised, though that's mentioned in verse 8, nor because he kept a law or worshipped God in a temple. Keeping a law, that's not what saved Abraham. Worshiping God in a temple, that's not what saved Abraham. Abraham got circumcised, that's not what saved Abraham. None of those things saved Abraham. He was saved, watch, 
God, I don't have a pen. I, oh, I have one somewhere. I feel it down there. There it is. We do this often. It's this, this, this simple. If that's salvation, it's not a pen, it's salvation. God tells Abraham, I'm giving you life with me. You're on a journey. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. And on Abraham's end, okay. But you can't touch it. It's okay. Abraham had faith. God supplied the grace. He's not saved because he was circumcised. He's not saved because... Listen, help me. Help me out. How do we know Abraham was not saved by keeping Moses' law? How do we know he wasn't saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Scott. He lived 2000 B.C. The law is given in 1445 B.C. 555 years after Abraham, he saved 555 years before the law got here. He couldn't have been saved by keeping the law. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm going to be a good person. That will never work. Abraham's the pattern. Abraham, help me out. He couldn't have been saved by offering sacrifices to God in Solomon's temple. Why? It wasn't built. Abraham lived 2000 B.C. The temple's built, let's say, roughly 960 B.C. 1,040 years later, couldn't have been saved by offering sacrifice. And he wasn't saved by circumcision. Here's why. We know some things. Track with me. Here come some details. Alarm. Alert. Alert. Pay attention. Lord, help me. Get the details. They're coming. About the next three or four minutes. Here they come. You ready? Lord, help me. He couldn't have been saved by circumcision because we know he circumcised at age 99. But he leaves Haran at age 75 when his dad died. Remember, he leaves Haran at 75. But he actually got saved before that when he's over here in Mesopotamia. God came to him, presented. God appeared, told him what's happening. He believed. He gets saved. Then he moves to Haran. I don't know how old he was when this happened. I know this. He's 75 here when his dad dies. I don't know how long he was there or when this happened. He's 75, and he later on gets down here. He's, you get it? He's 99 when he's circumcised. He's at least saved at least 24 years earlier. Circumcision didn't say. So then what's the point of circumcision? Well, that's what I want you to write down. Circumcision was merely an outward symbol. It was a symbol of the salvation he already possessed. He already had salvation. He got salvation here in Mesopotamia. Twenty-some years later, he ends up getting circumcised. He wasn't, he wasn't saved by circumcision. That was just, it's kind of like baptism for us today. Baptism never saves anybody. It's a sign, an outward expression of the salvation we already have. One last thing I want to make on this point, because we've got to get to the second point this morning. Would you look at, One more time at verse 8. There's something interesting here. And it leads to a point. So Abraham became... You're looking at verse 8 after you've written that note. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him in the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the twelve. Watch. This will sound like a fun little fact. All... Hear me. All three of Israel's first patriarchs are all... Second-born sons. Now, y'all help me out. Let's be interactive. Isaac has an older brother named Ishmael. Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. And you're going to have these offspring. 
And the offspring doesn't come. And so he and Sarah developed this little man-made plan. Well, since I can't have kids, I'm barren, use my handmaid. Jacob got it from granddad. Use my handmaid, Hagar, and you can have children with her. And that must be what God has in mind. And so Hagar and Abraham have sex. She gets pregnant. She has Ishmael, but that's not the promised line. Finally, God miraculously lets Abraham and Sarah have a child, and that's Isaac. Isaac's the second born. Jacob. Isaac has Jacob, but he too is the second born. What's his older brother's name? Esau. In fact, they are twins. So Jacob's second born to Esau. Abraham is the one that's tricky. Follow me. In Genesis 11, the Bible says that Abraham's dad, his name's Terah, T-E-R-A-H, Starts having children. Here's what, if you're good at math, you'll have an advantage. If you're not, just take the person's word for it beside you. Like, yeah, it's actually the math adds up. I hope y'all say it correct. Watch. Tara starts having kids at age 70. We know Tara dies at age 205. Starts having kids at age 70, dies at 205. That means his oldest child is 135. Abraham is listed first in a set of verses in Genesis 11. So you think Abraham is that oldest child. No. Putting Acts 7 together with Genesis 11, we know that Abraham left Haran when his dad died, and he's 75 when his dad dies. But we know that Terah's oldest son would be 135. So what that tells us is Abraham has an older brother that's 60 years older. That's neat, Jeff. Wow. Abraham's second born. Isaac's second born. Jacob's second born. That's kind of cool. Write this down. The Bible emphasizes the second birth. The Bible emphasizes the second birth. Jesus does this in John 3. So I ask you this morning, have you ever been born twice? I have. I was born first in 1979, January 2nd. Then I was born second time, I believe it was June 13th, 1979. My dead spirit was brought to life by putting faith in Christ. And God made me a whole person that day. When were you born again? I know you've been born once. I'm looking at you. And don't do this. This is what the Jews did and they were wrong. I've been a Christian all my life. That's as dumb as me saying, Deanna, I've been married to Deanna all my life. No. There was a moment in time, about 315, 320, on a Saturday afternoon, June 22nd, 1991. That's when she and I got, we got married at a moment of time. When did you put your faith and trust in Christ and receive his salvation? Number two. Second thought this morning comes out of verses 9 and 10. Here comes the themes. Israel rejects their first deliverer. That's the theme here. Israel rejects their first deliverer. Look at verse 9. Hey, Sanhedrin, you want to know, am I against the temple? Do I hate the temple? Do I speak against it? God spoke to her, Abraham. Gets saved here. He goes up here. He comes down here. He has these children. And then they have children. They have children. And then Jacob has these 12. Y'all remember how our dads, remember how ours, the heads of our fathers, remember how they hated the 11th born, hated him. We're going to kill him. They sold him into slavery. 
So in this whole process, verse 11, verse 9, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And he rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Hey, work with me real quick. Stephen is on a journey, and he's going to keep hammering this. It's going to come back next week and the following week again. Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to get three themes. Write the first one down, number one. God's blessings are not limited to the land of Israel. That one we already introduced last week. Abraham was saved in Mesopotamia down there. When he wasn't looking for God, in fact, he was serving other gods. God invaded his world. That's how it happened in my life. That's how it happened in your life if you have a relationship with God. God worked things out. God saved you. You didn't go to him and save yourself. So Stephen's point, I want you all to work with me again. God's blessings, Sanhedrin. I'm not against this place. I just need you to understand. God's blessings are not limited to here. He's a worldwide God. He's a worldwide plan. Yes, we're special in that plan, but we're part of taking his, his work and his message beyond. We're ultimately to reach the whole world. Stephen was on it, man, before anybody else really was. This guy's, man, he served his purpose and God let him die. But this guy, he was brilliant and he had been revealed some things. Do you notice this? I want you to help me. Deanna and I were talking the other day about the value of when you're studying the Bible of just observing I want you to, if you have your Bible open, like mine falls, I can look at the same time in verses 9 through 12. Maybe you have to flip a page. Like, literally, if you have your Bible, look at verses 9 through 12. I want you to look for a very important word that appears five times in those four verses. It's an important word, five times. In fact, it's twice in verse 10. What word? It's in verse 9, it's in verse 10, it's in verse 11, and it's in verse 12, and it's twice in verse 10. It's a very important word. What word am I thinking of? I'm hearing it lightly over here. What is the word? Egypt. Do you see what he's doing? Stephen is saying God's, God's blessings are not limited. Abraham saved outside of Israel. Jacob running from God, but he's blessed with all these kids and flocks outside of, of Israel. Joseph. Our fathers hated him, sold him in slavery, but God was with him down in Egypt. He just keeps hammering this idea home to them. I'm going to chase, a, I think, a quick rabbit with, with this this morning. Would you just hang with me? If I'm Stephen, I think he's getting this across. Sanhedrin, yes, the Bible has made much of the temple. It is important. And the sacrifices serve their purpose, and they are important. What makes the temple so special, though? It isn't just those sacrifices. Something more important made the temple special and sacred. It was what? What made it special and sacred? What was it? What do you think it was? Say it. The presence of God. They had this curtain, and they had this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and had these golden angels in between there. The Shekinah glory of God dwelled there, but... At this point in history, the Shekinah glory of God had been removed. And I think what Stephen is saying is, yes, the temple has been special, but God is going to let it be destroyed because His special presence isn't here anymore, and we don't need these sacrifices anymore. And by the way, it's not over there right now. Stephen was right. It was destroyed in AD 70. Stay with me. 
Stephen's point really is anywhere God specially manifests his presence, that's a sacred place. Anywhere where God's presence is there in a special way, a consecrated, set-apart way, this is where God's presence is. Where is that on earth today? Where? Say it, Doug. In Doug's body. Doug is where the special presence of God is. Oh, Doug. Oh, great Doug. No. It ain't about Doug. Go with me if you would. I'm going to hit this quick. 2 Corinthians. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Track with me quickly. We got to go. Got to go. Hurry, 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 hurry. Good. You're there almost. Good sound to hear pages turning. Bad sound to hear pages continuously turning. 1 Corinthians 6. Stephen wants them to know anywhere where God specially manifests his presence, that's a special place. That place is sacred. And this is where a t- Christians, your body is sacred. That's the point I want us to get this morning. I know it's a little rabbit trail I'm taking, but look at verse 12 if you would. Y'all see these quotation marks that the translators have put in there, the ESV translators? They kind of do us a favor, and I think they're on to the right point. Watch verse 12. Here we go. We're going to read down to verse 20. You ready? Everybody ready? Say, Lord, speak to me what, what I need to know out of this passage. Here we go, verse 12. All, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, is what someone would say. It's as though Paul, writing to the Corinthians where he had spent a year and a half already training and started that church and training them, some of them had no doubt paid attention. Paul, you've taught us that all things are lawful. We can eat that and we can drink that and we can do that and it's lawful to us. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Paul answers, but not all things are helpful. Okay, they're lawful. You can do that. But not everything you're allowed to do, grace for you, is actually helpful to do. Here they come again, verse, next verse, or same verse. All things are lawful for me, Paul writes, but I will not be dominated by anything. True. That activity of itself is not sinful. Paul says, but you know what I've determined? I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Is there anything in your life... That in measure is not sinful, but you've been letting it get out of measure. It's no longer helpful, and in fact, it's dominating you. Verse 13. Here's another little saying of the day. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Translation. God made these bodies and we have appetites. I have have urges. And God knows and I just need to satisfy those urges. Whether it be eating something or drinking something or looking at something or participating in something. God knows we have urges. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul replies, God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. I got urges. No. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised The Lord, Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power. Your body, what you do in it matters. It is sacred. It's where the special presence of God is being manifested. If you're a Christian because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside, your body is an eternal thing. Though it will die and go to the dust, God's going to raise it again. Your body is an eternal thing. It's sacred. Be careful what you do in it. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Do you not know this, Corinthians? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, there's something unique about sexual sin. It has a spiritual nature in it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Your body, if you're a Christian, is, is the member of Christ. It's the member. My hand right there is the, a member of my body. My hand is also a member of Christ. My arm is a member of Christ. My shoulder, my back, everything. I'm a member of Christ. And what God is saying to us, what Paul, through Paul, God is saying... If you're a Christian, your body is sacred. Keep your hands to yourself, unless you're married. Your body is sacred. If you're putting your hands all over one of God's children, you're putting your hands all over Christ in a way that you wouldn't do if you knew it was Jesus. Keep your hands to yourself until you get married. Amen, Jeff. You're right, brother. We need to hear that this day and age. Oh, okay, Jeff, in that case... I'm kidding. There I go. Being stupid again. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Simple questions. Simple takeaways. But I can do that. That's fine. That's true. You may be right. Is it helpful? Is it helpful? Number two, is it starting to dominate you? You getting addicted? Number three, you doing that, does it honestly glorify God? If you can't say yes, 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 don't do it. Back to Acts. We shouldn't be moving anywhere else that I know of. So we've hit this first theme that Stephen is trying to hit. The blessings are not limited to Israel. It's not all about this physical temple. There's other places God specially manifests his presence. Number two, second big theme. Like all of mankind, pride has been the constant enemy of the nation of Israel in its history. Pride. Sanhedrin. Do y'all know what our fathers did? It's ugly. They hated their brother. You know why? Because their brother came and told them. Yes, they hated their brother because dad liked him more. Yes, they hated their brother because he had this special coat. And dad favored him and he probably shouldn't have shown all of that. Wasn't their fault that that happened, but man, they sure took it wrong. But they really hated their brother when he got down and he told them, I'm having these dreams and they're from God and here's all I know. You guys are going to bow down before me. And they just hate him. Pride. Listen, help me out. Help me. The name Israel, we call it the nation of Israel. Israel comes from a man. God changed his name to Israel. What was his first name? Jacob. Everybody with me? A while ago, we said Jacob was a twin. Pride has been the enemy of the nation of Israel from day one. Because the nation of Israel, technically, that title started with Jacob. How did Jacob come into this world? Hanging on to his brother's heel. Twins in, Rebecca, in, in Rebecca's womb. And here come these two boys out. And Esau's coming first. And old number two, I want to be first. I want to be first. Heel snatching, supplanting his own brother. But he was born second. 
It's been a problem from day one. Pride. Number three. Joseph's big problem, he's just telling the truth. And they hate him for it. And then number three, Stephen, man, he's brilliant. He he has studied the Old Testament. He sees the patterns. Number one, here it goes. Israel has a pattern of rejecting God's deliverers the first time. They reject God's deliverers the first time. This is what's coming in chapter 7. There comes Jacob. Jacob is their deliverer. He's their God-sent deliverer. We hate that dreamer. In the coming couple of weeks, I believe, I imagine it will take at least two, if not three, we're going to be looking at Moses. Who do you think you are? Paraphrase, palace dweller. You're not one of us. You're a goody two-shoes. You're the, you're, the son, you're the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You've lived up there. You're not our deliverer. Get out of here. And they reject him. They reject their deliverer from famine. They reject their deliverer from slavery. And then, worst of all, at Stephen's point, they've rejected the one who's delivered them from sin and the penalty of sin. They've rejected the one whose death on the cross has made obsolete all of those temple sacrifices. But they don't want to give up that power. We don't, we don't accept him. And they reject him. Last thought in verse 9 and 10. We've got to finish in verse 11 to 16. You see verse 9, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. Quickly, you with me? Here we go. Ha! Showed you, buddy! Weeping and crying. We'll never see him again, guys. We'll never hear his voice again and we'll never see his face again, so they thought. But Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to know, even down in Egypt, God was with him. And he favored him. He graced him. Hurting, persecuted, in pain. Off goes goes Joseph down into Egypt. And he finally gets sold to this guy named, it's either his name or a title, Potiphar. Watch. Can't give all the details. Just know here's what happened. Potiphar buys him. In no time, Potiphar realizes this guy is special. He just moves up the ranks, and before long, Potiphar is like, you're not working out there. You're working in the house. And then, like, you're, you're one of the house servants. And then all of a sudden, you know what? You run. I work for Pharaoh. I'm, I'm the captain of his guard. You just run everything at my house. I'm turning it over all to you. Everything's under you except me. He's just favored. He's just blessed. Moves up the ranks until Potiphar's wife has inordinate sexual thoughts about Joseph, makes advances on Joseph. Joseph stays pure to the Lord, rejects her. She hates being spurned. She ends up crying rape. They arrest Joseph. Potiphar, no doubt, knowing it's a lie, but he can't take the Hebrew's word for it, has to take his Egyptian wife's word for it, sends him off to prison. Joseph now goes to prison. Listen, I'm reading quick. In no time, Joseph's running the prison. He's the prisoner running the... The keeper of the prison's like, dude... You got it going on. These guys listen. You run stuff and let me know when when I need to come in. Joseph is running the prison. And then these two guys have these dreams. And they can't interpret the dreams. They end up telling to Joseph. Joseph ends up telling the the interpretation of the dreams. Happens just like he says. The baker. Yeah. You're going to get your head cut off in three days. Cupbearer. You're going to be reinstated to be the cupbearer for Pharaoh again. Happens exactly like he says. Hey, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh. Sorry you died, buddy. Listen. 
happened. When you go back, remember me, put in a good word. And the cupbearer doesn't remember Joseph until Pharaoh has these dreams. And he starts telling the people of Egypt, I've got these dreams. There's the Nile River, and there's these seven cows. Man, they're big and healthy and fat and plump. But then there's these scrawny little nasty-looking cows, these seven other. The seven scrawny end up eating and devouring the seven plump ones. And I have this other dream. There's these seven stalks of grain, and they're just full of grain. I mean, they're just weighted down, loaded down with grain, plump, healthy. And then there's these seven blighted like nasty nothing on them, just manger-ridden, and those end up eating these. And I don't know what it means, and nobody can tell them what it means. And then the cupbearer's like, duh. There is this guy in jail. There's a Hebrew. Well, get him. He hears the dream. Joseph. Well, Pharaoh, actually, your dreams are one. The seven or seven years of good. The crops are going to do awesome for seven years. But then they're going to get canceled out by seven horrible years of famine. Here's what you ought to do. In those seven great years, you ought to be setting aside 20% of the food. You need to get you a person to like all around the land, like really take advantage of those seven years, set aside 20% so that when the bad comes, you'll have it. And then you can sell it. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. Yeah, you ought to get you a man to do that. Anything else for me? You're the man. And no doubt everybody's like, what? He just got out of prison. He just got a shave today. You're the man. You're number two in the land. Write it down. Though Joseph was persecuted for doing what God had predestined him to do, God gave him a winsome charm and great wisdom, evident to Pharaoh. Joseph was the guy that, whether with Potiphar, whether imprisoned, whether before Pharaoh, he just had favor, grace, charm, a beauty, not just physically, but just his person. He just had the touch. Joseph is the guy, he has the touch. Everybody likes Joseph. Almost everybody, his brothers don't. Everybody else, and this guy is just like the best. What are you even doing in prison? Well, this woman, she lied, yeah, but he couldn't. Aren't you like bitter and full of hatred? No, I'm just trying to stay faithful to God. Lastly, this morning, number three. Why is all this happening? We need to notice number three, the purpose of Joseph's trials or reveal. The purpose of Joseph's trials. Verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. Everybody with me? Here we go. There's this famine. Rewind. Verse 6. Abraham. You're going to have to send us. They're going to be sojourners in a foreign land. wonder what's going to make my people go to this foreign land. It's a famine. Now we know a famine is what caused it. Verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan. Great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. I mean, the, the, these other brothers, man, they're starving. And their dad, Jacob, the crops. I mean, the, 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 the the flocks and the herds, I mean, there's no food for them, no food for the, for the human beings. It's horrible. It's a tough time. But for some reason, there's food in Egypt. They're having the famine, but for some reason, they were ready for it. Boys, go down there and buy us some food. Off they go. Why are they ready? Because God and His sovereignty had orchestrated 
that Pharaoh would have a dream, that Joseph would be there just in time. He let him be sold into slavery. Joseph's there just in time to tell the interpretation. And he's appointed. And Joseph, for seven years, sets aside all the good. Man, it's great. And then the blight and the famine came. And Joseph's there selling grain. Would you write this down? I'm going to propose this. I wouldn't die for this, but I think there may be a little nugget of a thought. Verse 11 says that there was famine in Egypt and Canaan. Great affliction. Our fathers could find no food. Write it down. The brother's affliction, after their sin of selling their brother into slavery, kind of parallels the affliction that Jews all around the world have been having for the last 2,000 years ever since they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The first brothers rejected Joseph as their deliverer. 2,000 years ago, the Jews rejected Jesus as the great deliverer. And the Jews have been the single most hated nation for the last 2,000 years. And so he sends down. They're in affliction. Boys, go get us some food. Verse number 12. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And they come back with food. But their oldest brother... Second oldest brother is still down in Egypt as a prisoner. He's a bartering tool, a bargaining chip. We can't go get more food unless we bring the youngest son. And Jacob's like, no, I've already lost Joseph. Joseph got killed by an animal. I'm never giving up. Benjamin stays with me. Translation, I love him now more than I love you boys. You boys go get us some food. He's with me. (laughs) And they don't like that, I'm sure. But they're hungry and they're willing to go. Does everybody see what happened? This is important. The first time they go down, if you'll read Genesis, here's what happened. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. First trip, he knows them. They don't know him. Verse 13, Stephen says, And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Would you write this note down? Stephen, being a man of great vision, has realized another pattern in Israel's history. Sanhedrin, here's what you need to understand. We have a pattern of rejecting our God-appointed deliverer the first time. But by God's grace, we actually accept our deliverer the second time they come. They receive Joseph the second time. You're going to see the same pattern with Moses the second time. And we know what the Bible says. Right now, today, to this day, the Jews have rejected Jesus the Christ. They don't believe he's the Christ. But we know according to Romans chapter 11 and in Zechariah chapter 12, Christ the Messiah is going to come back. And the second time he comes to earth, the Jews will receive him. And they're always blessed when they receive their deliverer and accept him. Verse 14 and 15, read it quickly. Here's what it writes. So Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt. And he died. Eventually he died. He and our fathers. Everybody with me? Watch. Brothers, it's me. And he weeps and he cries and he hugs their neck. And they're probably like, you're going to kill us? No, I'm not going to kill you. Because you got the power. You could have. I know I could. I see what God has done. I love you guys. God has sent me here. He let me go through all of that to bring us to this point. Go get dad. There is no reason dad should worry for one minute about food when Egypt has an abundance of it and I'm in charge of the food. Go get dad. Bring him down here. And the Sanhedrin's having to listen 
how the patriarchs and Jacob leave the land of Canaan and go down into the land of Egypt and are blessed. John R.W. Stott writes the following, quote, If Mesopotamia was the surprising context in which God appeared to Abraham, Egypt was the equally surprising scene of God's dealing with Joseph. Six times in seven verses, Stephen repeats the word Egypt as if to make sure that his hearers have grasped its significance. Six times, seven verses, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. That's where God preserved our nation. Follow me. What Joseph's saying is, hey, patriarchs, do you understand? We went down 75 of us. And yes, there was slavery. And yes, it was 400 years. But in 400 years later, we're going to come out. We came out probably estimated like 2 million people. This is why the Egyptians put them in slavery. Like, man, these people are multiplying. And in their slavery, they're getting strong. Yes, individually there was slavery. But on the whole, the nation was actually blessed and made strong. And in a unique way blessed when they came out of the land of Egypt. And God had a purpose. Would you move with me to verse 16? Quick house cleaning. Then an actual important note about verse 16. And then some final wrap-up thoughts. Look at verse 16. So Jacob went down. Hey, Sanhedrin, our forefather. He went down. And then our individual dads, the tribes, these 12 sons, the other 11 sons, joined Jacob, who's already there. And they all died down there. He and our fathers. Now watch verse 16. Watch it. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. This is actually confusing. And some people look at this and say, Stephen's message is full of errors that don't line up with the Old Testament. But actually, don't reach that conclusion. When you look at verse 16, and they were carried back to Shechem, they means Joseph and his brothers. It does not mean Jacob. Jacob is not buried at Shechem. Jacob's buried in a place called the cave of Machpelah, if I'm saying that correctly. Jacob, so here they come back. The children of Israel are leaving Egypt. And they're bringing the remains of their most important patriarchs. And so they have the bones of Jacob and the 12 sons. Jacob ends up being buried down in a place called Hebron. Here's Hebron. Here's Jerusalem. Up here's Shechem. The 12 sons get buried up there. Jacob ends up getting buried down here with Abraham and Isaac. But notice Stephen's point. None of them are buried at the temple or in Jerusalem where they were currently sitting as a Sanhedrin. Wiersbe writes the following. Who purchased the burial place in Shechem? Who purchased that? Abraham or Jacob? It's kind of confusing. Some people have said this isn't accurate. Wiersbe writes. Stephen seems to say that Abraham bought it, but the Old Testament record in Genesis 33 says that Jacob bought it. Abraham purchased the cave at Machpelah. Jacob purchased this. So it seems like Stephen's got it backwards. I believe Wiersbe is on to something. He writes, the simplest explanation is that Abraham actually purchased both pieces of property and that Jacob later had to repurchase the Shechem property again. So there, I got that out of the way. I needed to do that unless somebody out there say, yeah, the Bible's a lie, and here's one of the examples that it has mistakes in it. No, probably what happened? Abraham bought both. Jacob had to rebuy that one because it may have fallen back into the hands of original owners. My last thought on verse 16 is coming. I want you to see it. What's Stephen doing? Because nothing is without intentionality. 
He says, when our forefathers left, what he's saying, after 400 years, they were carried back to Shechem. They being Joseph and the other 11 brothers. To where? Shechem. Later on, he says the word Shechem again. Why is that important? Write this down. In Stephen's time, Shechem was absolutely despised by the Jews because the city of Shechem was the center of Samaritan worship. The Samaritans, they had this place called Mount Gerizim just outside the city of Shechem. And that's where the Samaritans, half Jews, the Jews hated these half Jews because they had intermarried with Gentiles. We hate them. You know what Stephen's saying? Hey, Sanhedrin, you got to admit, of all the places God could have had our forefathers buried, they're buried right now in the land of Samaria, where you hate. When you go through there, if you're going to Galilee, you go around Samaria, you hate this place. That's where our forefathers are buried. God did not have them buried at the temple or just outside the temple or in Jerusalem. None of this was important at that time. That was later on. God was not in as big a hurry as you are to make much of the temple. They're buried up in Samaria. So final lessons, I'm going to fire them off. But i got to start with two that are not on your list. Okay, you ready? Lesson number one, not on your list. So it's not on the list. So get what Stephen's doing. Hey, Sanhedrin, you have a pattern of making a big deal about stuff that God doesn't make quite that big a deal about. And I'm going to raise my hand. I've been guilty of doing this in my own life. And I hope I'm not doing it now. In my younger days, I've been guilty of making a bigger deal than God does about some things. I've been guilty of making a bigger deal of a one and only single translation as though no other translations can ever be right, can ever be the Word of God. I've been guilty. I've been guilty of making more of appearances and human standards of appearances that are nowhere in the Bible, just totally man-made, fabricated, and identified by, going to churches, identified by a translation, identified by standards, external standards, identified by rules about Christian music that are nowhere in the Bible. Stephen, I think, is saying, y'all have made more of the temple than God has. You've overdone it. And that's the temple. Which you'd think they had good reason. It was honored. These things I just said, nowhere does the Bible say there's going to be this one final end-all translation that all the world has to learn English. Because some men in 1611, and I love the King James Bible. It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. I grew up on it. Most of my memorization is in the King James. But sometimes, man, we get way out of bounds. The other thing that is not on your list, lesson, can't miss this. It's, it's obvious all through it. Here it is. God is sovereign over all things. He had this big plan. He pulled off the plan. He knows it in advance. Now, would you write these down? A lesson we learn in today's text is that God, the Bible pulls no punches in telling people the truth. The Bible pulls no punches in telling people the truth. Do y'all know what it means to pull your punches? It's like if somebody's a boxer... And they're paid to lose the fight. They're, they're rigging it because money is being bet on this. And they're going to lose on purpose so that people who know they're going to lose. And so they pull their punches. They don't actually really follow through. It's like, and only an expert. The Bible, 
doesn't pull punches when it gives us the truth. Listen, you wouldn't want the Bible pulling punches. You don't want the Bible scaling back. We need the real truth. We need the truth in love, but we need the truth. I've been told there are people that will not come to this church because they don't like what might be said about marital faithfulness. I've been told by people, they have family members that will not come here because what might be said about sexuality and what God's Word says about homosexuality. Those things. But they want to hear the Bible, but they want to go where it's pulled. Will you pull the punch? Don't really, can you just skip that? I'm never going to, I hope I never go out of my way to hit anything like that. What we really need to do is say, I want a Bible that tells me the truth. And here's what Stephen said. Sanhedrin, Abraham was a polytheistic idolater. We love him and we make a big deal about him. And that dude was worshiping the moon god when the real god invaded his world. It had nothing to do with Abraham. We all have to have our own relationship with God. They don't like this. Our forefathers sold their brother into slavery and that only because the older brother stopped them from murdering him. This is what we come from. You want to hear the truth. The Bible will give it to you. It doesn't like sugar. Oh, more's coming. We're going to get a little truth about Moses and a little truth about David. It's coming. Stephen doesn't pull punches either. Number two, pride is the constant enemy of all of us. It's not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. It's a you problem. Pride... We need to humble ourselves. And that leads to the last one. You say, Jeff, this is good, man. I see what you're saying. You got these themes and you got this, all these details, man. I, maybe I do need to go back and read Genesis to kind of fill in. It was just a lot today. It was a lot. You lost me. Jeff, I just needed some. I'm struggling. I'm in a hard time this week. I'm experiencing. Can I use the word affliction? I'm experiencing affliction. And I just needed a word of encouragement. Well, go home and read this passage and chew on this thought. Write it down. When God allows affliction to come into the lives of His people, it's always for a divine purpose. And He's always in it with us. If you're his child, then know whatever, whatever degree, whatever style, again, whatever degree of, of difficulty, whatever kind of difficulty is coming in your life, just know God has, God is sovereign. He could stop it. He has a divine purpose. You may not know it right now. Joseph sure did. Brothers, man, he had hard times. He bawled and cried. Man, he was afflicted and persecuted and done wrong. Hard times. But God had a reason. And later on, I see it. Lord, you were actually letting me go through that to bring about all of that. And you were with me the whole time in it. Would you stand as we pray for our meal today? Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would, that you would just bring points, verses, truths of this up in our thoughts today, throughout this week. Let us glean. Lord, it may be a different thing for literally every person in here. I know this was a real shotgun-style message.
But God, I pray that you would use it in my life and in every hearer's life to draw us closer to you, to trust your sovereignty, to trust that you have a great plan, that you are always good, that you're near. And Lord, I pray if anyone here this morning has rejected Jesus, their great deliverer, the first time, Lord, may they not wait until standing before him at the great white throne judgment when it will be too late the second time. Father, would you please give them faith to trust Christ the first time in this life, please. Lord, if we can help them, let them have that conversation even today. Lord, would you put your favor and your blessing, your grace and beauty like you did on Joseph, would you put it on our church, on us as individuals, on this meal? Would you bless this food? Give us strength from it to do your will. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great way. Have a great day. Older folks, got two minutes. Get that head start. <laughs>